Episode 4, The Ontario Campaign, 1755-1759, to Part 1, Wood Creek and Fort Oswego. The fortress city at Ville de Quebec was the crown jewel of New France, and the French king did not intend to leave it unguarded. The downstream fort of Louisbourg on Capertown Island acted as the front door in order to gain access to the St. Lawrence, this to make a fully treacherous upriver approach to Quebec. There was another possible water route entrance, and that was by the back door through Lake Ontario to the southwest. If a British force could capture Fort Frontenac, located at modern-day Kingston, they could force the St. Lawrence to Montreal and onwards to Quebec. The French had another strategic fort that allowed them to control the crucial water route along Lake Ontario. Fort Niagara, located in modern Youngstown, New York, controlled access to the Niagara River south to the portage around the falls and onto Lake Erie. The British hoped to target Niagara in order to cut French supply links with the Great Lakes. Then an attempt could be made against Frontenac while a land invasion proceeded along the Champlain Valley. The British also had an important outpost on Lake Ontario from which they hoped to launch their raids against the French forts in the lake. The British fort was located at Oswego on the southern shore of the lake. Fort Oswego was situated at the point where the Oswego River flowed into Lake Ontario. One could paddle southeast up the Oswego River and onto Lake Oneida. Passing east across the lake, you could enter Wood Creek. Winding its way northeast towards the Mohawk River, here could be found a portage near modern-day Rome, New York. The Mohawk flows east from the portage until meeting the Hudson River above Fort Edward. Turning south on the Hudson, one could sail downriver past Albany and view the Catskill Mountains. Passing Kingston, New York, and on through the Hudson Highlands at West Point, Peekskill could be sighted around the bend. Further south, one would enter what the Dutch would call the Tappan Zee, or Sea of Tappan, due to the Hudson's width at this point. Soon the majestic Palisades Cliffs would arise, followed by the outline of a great island. At the southern tip of this long and hilly island was said to lay a magnificent natural harbor at the center of the world. The summer of 1755 saw British preparations for an offensive by both land and sea against the seat of power in New France. While in episode 1 we discussed William Johnson and his preparations for a land offensive up Lake George and onto Lake Champlain, another expedition was being planned by William Shirley. Shirley was governor of Massachusetts Bay, whose skill at raising New England regiments was matched by the reach of his patronage system. He became commander of the British Army in North America upon Braddock's death on July 13, 1755. Shirley's own son was also killed alongside General Braddock at the Wilderness. The governor had been feuding with Johnson and competing against his expedition for both supplies and men up and down the Hudson River Valley. By mid-August 1755, Shirley had reached Oswego, which wasn't really a centralized fort, but a series of works on either side of the Oswego River. Fort Ontario was the strongest of the three fortifications and stood to the north of the river, while Forts Old Oswego and George stood on the southern bank. Leaving 1,500 men to garrison the fort, Shirley hurried back towards Albany, being pulled by the demands of his new role. The post at Oswego had been left under supply with just two months of stores to last the entire winter. In order to survive the freezing winter months, the fort would have to rely upon the water route connection to the Hudson more than 150 miles away. As he marched east back towards Albany, Shirley made sure to fortify the key portage between Wood Creek and the Mohawk River to ensure the supply route to Oswego stayed open. 
The mere one-mile portage trail was found amongst swampy ground and called the Great Carrying Place by the natives. In many places, the windings are so sudden and so short that while the bow of the boat was plowing in the bank on one side, her stern was rubbing hard against the opposite shore. In some places, our men are obliged to drag the boats by main strength. In others, the bows and limbs were so densely interwoven and so close so as to arch the creek completely and oblige all hands to lay flat in the boat, read a colonial land promotion. On the Mohawk end of the portage, Fort William was constructed as a fortified blockhouse garrisoned by 150 men and four cannon. The portage side nearest Wood Creek was never finished properly before winter set in. Wood Creek, hemmed in by dense overgrowth, still shouts of an ambush on a dark afternoon. Indeed, several times during the 18th century, the creek ran red with blood as contending forces fought over its banks and fortifications, according to historian Richard Burleth. Braddock's defeat had yielded to the French the upcoming plans for British strikes on Lake Ontario. The French would now take the initiative and strike at the lifeblood supplying the port at Oswego, the defenses, at either end of the great carrying place. On March 12th, over 400 troops de la Marine, Abenaki, and Mohawk warriors set out for the two-week journey to the carrying place. Their native scouts captured prisoners who revealed the plethora of supplies being shuffled down the portage that very moment. On the Wood Creek end sat an unfortified storehouse named Fort Bull, and that was garrisoned by 60 men who were busy moving supplies on their way to Oswego. Catching the wooden stockade gate opened, the French and Adulerie attempted to sneak up on their opponents and take the post by bayonet. Native warriors alerted the defenders too soon and the gate was closed to them. The French were able to hack a breach in the hastily built fence and storm Fort Bull in under an hour. Less than five British survivors made it out alive. The huge amount of supplies found within the fort helped sustain the raiders to prolong their presence astride the portage on the wood side of the creek throughout the spring. Meanwhile, Shirley was recalled and Lord Loudon was sent in his stead along with Generals Abercrombie and Webb. Before leaving, Shirley had ordered General Bradstreet to reopen the Wood Creek side and the route onwards to Oswego. Though somewhat successful, he was ambushed by the French on July 3rd on his way back from delivering supplies to the fort. About 700 French ambushed 300 British in the Oswego River nine miles south of the fortifications. While taking heavy losses, the British flotilla sought the shelter of the south bank of the river and were shielded by an island that sat astride on it. The French attempted to cross via the island to outflank the British forces, but Bradstreet directed his men to prevent a French landing in order to complete the victory. The French landing force became bogged down and took heavy losses. Reinforcements from Oswego helped Bradstreet drive the disorganized French away in retreat. The British dead totaled around 70, with French losses at around 200 killed in action. The general was able to return to Albany, and the vital route was barely kept open. Oswego was holding on, but just barely, and a race had begun to either supply the fort or choke it off once and for all. During the critical period in the summer of 1756, the British High Command in North America found itself between leaders. General Abercrombie and General Webb had both arrived in Albany by June of 1756. They were to command British forces in the interim while Lord Loudon sailed from England and he was to arrive in July. Abercrombie inherited a strategy that called for a strike towards the French position at Fort Carillon, but he received news of renewed French attacks on Oswego's supply line. Pulled in two directions and not possessing any permanent authority, General Abercrombie vacillated. While the British command was in limbo, the new French commander, the Marquis de Montcalm, had arrived from France to take charge of the war effort. 
I will discuss the background of the Marquis in the final episode of Season 1, but it is suffice to say that Montcalm inherited a strong military position from Governor General Vaudreuil. The Marquis agreed upon the seizure of Oswego to protect the supply lines on Ontario between Niagara and Frontenac. He was less sure of Rodrigo's other motive of ensuring the alliance system of the high country natives by continuing to demonstrate French prestige. The British were ensconced at Fort William Henry and were thought to be preparing a strike north at the French fortifications on Lake Champlain. The French command was therefore intentionally moved to Carillon, which was situated at the carrying place between Lake George and Lake Champlain, in order to uh, facilitate a deception at the end of June 1756. Montcalm made himself busy for the first few weeks of July by visible efforts to the enemy. The British command suffered from continued raids on its supply lines in the Mohawk Valley and was distracted by Montcalm's presence opposing their invasion of Lake Champlain. The French began to build up their forces through the back door. The Chevalier de la Vie was left in command of Carillon as Montcalm dashed to Montreal in secrecy on July 19th. At Montreal, Governor General Vaudreuil's younger brother Rigaud and 700 men were sent to rendezvous at Sackett's Harbor on Lake Ontario with the bands of Parti de Guerre that had been harassing the British supply lines in the Mohawk River Valley. Rigaud's scouts reported that Fort Oswego was but a loopholed wall held by 600 or 700 ill-fed, discontented, and mutinous men. Captured prisoners reported that more than a thousand had, had died of disease over the past year alone. The French intelligence wasn't quite off the mark, for Colonel John Mercer's post had been starving due to the raids and supplies, and was so disease-ridden that the garrison barely emerged by the early summer of 1756 for repairs. Montcalm moved towards Fort Frontenac during the last two weeks in July, stopping to engage a large council of natives at La Présentation. Native allies of Catholic Mohawk and the High Country's peoples shared the French general's desire to push the English back towards the coast. But Oswego presented a quandary as it lay in Iroquois country and the natives enjoyed free trade. Though the Iroquois nation expressed neutrality, native warriors informed Montcalm they would not assault fortified positions or be involved in European field maneuvers. They would certainly scout and screen, but would do so as independent allies. The Catholic Mohawk especially dreaded a repeat of the horrific fraternal struggle that had taken place in the woods outside the fortified British camp the year before during the Battle of Lake George. Without the direct assuagement and assurance of the Iroquois Confederacy, the 1756 campaign against Oswego could have never materialized. By August 6, French forces had assembled over 3,000 troupes de la Marine, Canadian militia, and native allies at Sackett's Harbor to invest the 1,100 men of Oswego. The French made the 30-mile march from Sackett's Bay to Fort Oswego in four days without being detected by the British until August 10th. French scouts observed that Fort Oswego was three separate fortifications set up in a triangle pattern. The strongest of these was Fort Ontario, which lay isolated on the northern side of the Oswego River facing the French lines. Separated by the river, a smaller blockhouse called Old Oswego was surrounded by a stone masonry wall and a dirt rebound about a quarter of a mile further south on the same side of the river comprised the meager British defenses at Oswego. Fort Ontario was obviously the strongest of the three works comprising the complex. By its virtue of its position upon a 75-foot cliff above Lake Ontario and controlling the mouth of the Oswego River, Colonel Mercer had divided his men almost evenly among the three posts, even though Fort Ontario was the only fortification that could support cannon. 
During the night of August 11th, Montcalm's engineers had dug siege lines within 200 yards of Fort Ontario. While a tremendous bombardment at close range was opened up on the morning of August 12th, Mercer quietly ferried several hundred British soldiers across Oswego and into the lightly fortified blockhouse enclosure. Montcalm had failed to extend his siege lines to the river. The British made a fatal miscalculation in ceding the high ground of Fort Ontario so easily, though. French forces occupied the heights and sighted the poorly constructed works to the south of the Oswego River. The French artillery opened up on the 13th as Partie de la Guerre flanked the remaining British forts by fording the Oswego. The lightly fortified British blockhouse suffered heavy damage as Colonel Mercer was cut to pieces by a French cannonball. French troops forced the evacuation of the dirt redoubt, and the remaining British forces surrendered on August 14th. Montcalm refused the garrison the honors of war due to their perceived lack of rigorous effort in the defense of the position. Historian Fred Anderson cites Montcalm as being frustrated that a plan to lure British relief forces into the Mohawk Valley and then strike at Fort William Henry from Carillon was upended by the quick surrender at Oswego by the British, and hence his impulsive refusal to offer the honors of war to the surrendering British. The British suffered less than 150 killed, while more than 1,000 became prisoners of war. According to historian William Fowler Jr., the booty was impressive. Seven armed vessels, 200 bateaux, 55 cannon, 14 mortars, 5 howitzers, 47 swivel guns, and hundreds of barrels of gunpowder. The several hundred French native allies were unhappy with the mostly military stocks found within the post. Besides British military forces, several hundred civilian workers and the families of soldiers lived at Fort Oswego. When the post fell, native warriors raided the hospitals and killed up to a hundred wounded in order to strip the belongings. British prisoners faced a loss of personal property and outright kidnapping as they faced a gauntlet of native warriors outside the fort. Montcalm was forced to intervene and begin to ransom prisoners at a very high value. The victory at Oswego seemingly benefited the French in terms of native support for the 1757 campaign against Fort William Henry, but far too much emphasis is placed on the supposed ransoms paid by Montcalm as the prime motivating factor. Historian Michael MacDonald explains, As Vaudreuil initially hoped, the victory appeared to cement the alliances of unprecedented numbers of natives from far and wide. Vaudreuil knew as far as his native allies were concerned, talk was cheap. While plunder was seen as direct payment for services performed by an independent ally, it was subordinate to larger political reasons. Oswego was indeed captured by transit allowed through neutral territory of the Iroquois. French military decisiveness had helped convince dithering natives not only of her strength, but of her wisdom in deftly navigating the complex, interconnected world of native alliances. Commanders on Lake Erie cited numerous upper country native representatives openly taking the French side after the fall of Oswego. The French were now seen as best suited to guarantee peaceful trade on the water routes of New York and Quebec. British forces under Lord Loudoun's second-in-command, General Webb, were rapidly trying to push the Mohawk in order to relieve the garrison. When the news of the fall of Oswego reached him, Webb retreated to Albany. The westernmost outpost of the British Empire on the New York frontier was now at German Flats. This small village was a mere 70 miles west of Albany. Montcalm burned the complex at Oswego as he could not afford to occupy the post, as it would stretch his supply lines too thin. But the British had lost much. Historian Walter Borman writes, Not only was the Lake Ontario fleet lost, but more importantly, the gateway to the lucrative fur trade.